will dive in to 1 Peter um, and some others. And I will tell you about that in a moment. But let's start by praying. We need to pray today. Father, I pray for this message, the ones coming. Prepare our hearts. May it be soft. May, uh, may we be open to hear from you. May we be prepared to be challenged. May we be prepared to reassess our beliefs if necessary, uh, myself included. May we be people who truly love you and show that love by obedience to your word. May we cherish you. May we prize you more than anything else in this world. And may we be prepared to walk in your footsteps. Footsteps that led you to Calvary. Footsteps that led to crucifixion. Footsteps that led to selfless, silent suffering. May you be glorified in our lives this day and forevermore. Amen. Amen. To have a high view of the Bible... It does not mean that we quote the Bible when we like a passage. It means we bow before it when we don't. There is no subject, I believe, more challenging than the one that we're going to be looking at over the next three weeks in this day and age. We are going to be looking at the topic of marriage. And in our context of First Peter last week, and if you weren't here last week, I strongly encourage you to catch up. Last week's sermon was, was important. It's not because I did a good job. It's got nothing to do with me. It's because the text is at the very center of everything that Peter is trying to say to us. It is foundational, and it is the very thing that makes us distinguished, distinct as Christians regarding the rest of the world. Jesus Christ is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. That's what we saw last time. And he went to the cross, he went to Calvary, and he went there, and when he was there, he was crucified, he was scourged, he was mocked, and yet we're told in chapter 2 and verse 22, he committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten. But rather, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I don't want to repeat the whole of last week's sermon, but we need to see this context this week, next week, and the week after. And the context is this. That Jesus Christ went to the cross, and he did not sin in the face of the most gross sins ever committed in human history. There is no sin greater than the murdering of the Son of God, the creator of heaven and earth. None. And in the face of that sin, in the face of that rejection, in the face of that crucifixion, Jesus Christ did not sin. Specifically, he said nothing that wasn't true. He didn't speak negatively back. And neither did he threaten so there was no lies, there was no negative or, or rebuke back, and there was no threatening. He did not, on the cross, say, oh, you mock me now, but there's a day of judgment coming. There's a day of judgment coming, and you will regret this. If he'd said that, that would have been absolutely 100% true. And yet he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Why did he behave this way? Why did he not use his position, his authority, his power, his might? Because he entrusted himself to God. He entrusted himself to the one who will, just, who will judge rather justly. In other words... I don't have to do anything now because my father has it all in hand. And that, friends, is the model of what Christianity is. 
Christianity, as I said last time, is not wearing a t-shirt saying something with a Bible verse on it. It's not having a bumper sticker of a fish on your car. It's not telling everybody at church that you're a Christian. And it's not having a certain type of politics or, or being obnoxious at work when someone mentions a topic that you think is particularly something that you know about that's vaguely Christian. Being a Christian is about no deceit, no reviling, no threatening, not giving people what they deserve, loving them, forgiving them, and treating them well when you are treated atrociously. So much so, this is where Peter's building to, he's building up to chapter 3 and verse 15, so that people come to you. Not that you have to be on a soapbox, not that you have to preach at them, but they come to you and say, what is it about you? Why are you so different? Why do you behave this way? This isn't normal. Now, this is our context. And it is in this context that Peter is now having addressed the need to submit to the governments and ruling authorities who may well treat you badly and who may well be very bad, who may do bad things, who may have very, very wrong ideas. And yet we're going to submit to masters that may, you know, if you're a teenager, may apply to your parents. If you're at work, it might apply to your boss. If you're in the army or one of the armed forces, it probably applies to you more than anyone else in society today. But, you know, just submitting to people who, quite frankly, might be quite unpleasant people. But nowhere do these principles hit home harder than in the home. Marriage can be the most wonderful thing in the entire common grace of this world that God has given to us all. Marriage can be absolutely magnificent. But when it goes wrong, it has the potential to be the most heart-wrenchingly painful thing that could exist. And he is going to apply the same principles to marriage. Next Sunday... And I'm aware that some people might be away because it's Thanksgiving period. But next Sunday, and if you are away, please catch up. We're going to be looking at what he says to wives. The Sunday after, we're going to be looking at what he says to husbands. And it's going to be uncomfortable and at times, for many of you, quite frankly, brutal. I have been dreading these sermons for months. um, And... I feel vastly unqualified to to deal with it, other than I have failed in this area so much that I think I can help the rest of you if you're failures as well. But we're going to address wives and husbands specifically, and it will be uncomfortable because it is so countercultural. And I'm not talking about wives submit to your husbands and and, and husbands love your wives. We'll talk about that a, a little bit today. But I'm talking about the fact that Peter is specifically specifically talking about when your spouse treats you badly. Now, that may be that you just have the most wonderful spouse. Just wonderful. They're just lovely. And then every now and again, you know, maybe once a month, they do something really, really bad. And you're like, oh, why do I have to endure this every month that you would do such a thing and then we have to endure But for others, it may be something that you endure every single day. It may be something that you've endured for years, and it might have sucked every little life out of your bones. So we need to be sensitive, and we need to be full of empathy and care for those who struggle. But we must not compromise the text. And Peter is going to address these people and these situations But before we get there, and that's where we are today, it it seems to me that Peter, by the things he doesn't say as much as by what he does say, he is building on a foundation. It's very, very clear to me that as we've looked at 1 Peter thus far, that Peter is constantly referring to what we might call Pauline doctrine. He's referring to the teachings that we commonly associate with Paul. I am of the very convinced opinion that when Peter wrote his letter, he already had an early copy of Ephesians. You remember when Paul wrote Ephesians, there was a copy. Very quickly, there became multiple copies. And you would have thought that the apostles might have been top of the list of those who might get hold of one. And Peter certainly, I think, had a copy of Ephesians. And we have noted 
multiple references, uh, allusions to, uh, to Ephesians. And there were probably as many again that I could have done. And so I think that Peter, and more importantly, his churches he's writing to, that they would have definitely been aware of the teaching on marriage and what have you. And we live at a very different time. We live in a very different culture. And so what I want to do this morning, as we take this context, and as we move into what he says specifically to husbands and wives, we need to start with some principles of marriage. I don't typically do topicals. I don't like to leave the flow, and I'm trying not to leave the flow. But we're going to look at a few passages on marriage to make sure that we're starting chapter 3, which is where we'll start next time, with the same principles that Peter starts chapter 3 with. You with me? So we're going to start with um, Ephesians chapter 5. So let's turn there now. Keep a finger, ribbon, something in First uh, Peter, because we'll be back there at the end. So Ephesians and chapter 5. Logan kindly read that for us this morning, and... Um, I was careful to have him read a larger section so that we could could be uh, aware of the context. Ephesians 5, well, Ephesians generally, chapters 1 to 3, this is what God has done for you. This This is the blessings that you have in Christ. God has done all the work and salvation. You've done nothing. You know, your contribution was your sin. Um... You know, you were dead, he's made you alive. God's done everything, there's your blessings, there you are. You're, you're chosen, you're called, you're justified, redeemed, and the Spirit of God is within you. Hallelujah. Then you come to chapter 4, and he says, because of this calling, you need to live a certain way. And he uses the term walk. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you've been called. Don't walk this way, walk that way. And he repeats in this latter section, walk, walk, walk. When we come to chapter 5... Um, Logan read to us from verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So you've got to live the right way. He specifically says you need to know what the will of the Lord is, verse 17. Verse 18, we're told not to get drunk with wine because that's debauchery, but rather to be filled by the Spirit. Most versions still say with. That, I think, is misleading. The Greek here is very specific. It uses a tense that communicates that we are not an empty glass that is being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's not, that's nonsense. If you were brought up on that understanding, you need to rid your brain of it. But rather, we are filled by the Holy Spirit. If you want to picture yourself as a jug being filled with water, the Holy Spirit is not the water. The Holy Spirit is the jug that is filling you. And so we are being filled with the fullness of God, that God's plan for us is being brought to fruition as we mature and as we grow. And as we do grow, there are certain things that we do. We address one another in psalms and hymns and and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Listen, if you think the church starts at 12.15 when we start preaching, then you, you may not be filled with the Spirit. Or by the Spirit. Look at me, make, make, contradicting myself from two seconds ago. But seriously, one of the things that determines us as Christians, one of the things that is an expression of the Holy Spirit in our lives, one of the things that, that, um, that uh, is, is an outworking of God's work in our lives is the fact that we want to worship God in various ways. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to give you a good voice. You know, you may may not have the greatest voice in the world, but there will be a desire to worship and a desire to worship. And I love the phrase here, addressing. We need to address one another. Worship is not what you do by yourself in your car, though it may be part of it. But there is something about corporate worship. We declare to one another the glories of our Christ. I love him and you love him. Let's love him together. I see that truth. I see who he is. You see it too? Let's proclaim it. There's all of that going on. Corporate worship is a holy thing. And I encourage you to be here from the first chord each Sunday. So we, we, um, 
we, we, we don't want to uh, have drunk, drunkenness. We don't want to be controlled by wine, but rather we want to be controlled by the Spirit and we want to have him captivate our heart for worship. We want to be thankful, verse 20, giving thanks um, to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to be a thankful people. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. A desire to worship, a gratitude in our hearts. And what's the third thing? Submit. Submission is one of the clearest indications that we are godly people. And yes, that includes husbands. Not to your wives, but you must submit as much as your wives. And we're going to make that very clear in two weeks' time. In fact, I think the sermon on husbands may surprise people more than the sermons on wives. But we'll come to that. That's just a teaser. We'll get there in a couple of weeks. Um, so we need to submit. We need to be people who are prepared to bow the knee before Christ, before his will and before his ways. And that then leads Paul to husbands and wives. And he tells us where, how husbands and wives should be. Now, I'm not going to go through this in huge detail. The context was almost more important. That this is the outworking of our spiritual our spiritual lives, of our, of our sanctification. But I will make note of the basics because I want us to understand the basics. But we'll, the reason I'm going to be brief is because we're going to look at this in a lot more detail the next two weeks. Okay? But basically, there is a misunderstanding in this, in, not this church, but the church as a whole. And the misunderstanding is this, that in, in Christianity, in a biblical marriage, that wives submit and that husbands lead. That is an error. Husbands, the word is not, it begins with L, but it's not lead. It's love. Wives submit, husbands love. And the distinction is incredibly important. I don't want to preempt myself for the next couple of weeks, but I just want to give you a teaser because I want to start to prepare your heart. But, the husband, let's go back a step. Children obey your parents, Ephesians 6. Children there would be, in the understanding, the way that Greek word was used, would, would be more your younger children. And, there is an, and, I, and I've made clear in recent weeks how I feel things should be distinguished once children become teenagers. But with the younger children, there is an expectation of obedience. Husbands, you have no basis at all to expect your wives to obey or to submit, or to do anything. None at all. You are not commanded to make them submit. That command is not in Scripture. It does not exist. It is not a biblical concept. It is a social construct that has been adopted by the church and causes great harm, and you need to let go of it. Wives are, committed to, are, are um, told to submit. Husbands... You need to do what you're commanded to do, and that is to love. Now, with that said, and boy, we're going to spend some time on that. I'm only skimming now. What I really want us to see is why. The wife is clearly not lesser than the husband. We will talk about that at length next week. Submission does not imply in any way, shape, or form anything less because Christ did not, uh, he did not speak deceit, he did not revile, and he did not threaten. Why? Because he trusted the Father. Is Christ less than the Father? Is Christ somehow the, 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 the poor member of the Trinity? Uh, is, you know, no, Christ is equal to the Father. But Christ submitted, he took the role of a servant. And he trusted the Father. Submission is not a, uh, a statement of recognizing that one is lesser. Submission is a statement of trusting God. I hope that's clear as well. And again, we'll become clearer. And these, these roles exist because... Well, let's read through the text. For the wife submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. 
his body, and is itself his saviour. So wives submit to the husband in the way that you would submit to Jesus, because the husband is head of your body like Christ is head of the church, the body of his wife, his bride. In other words, there's a picture being painted here. And the husband is playing the role of Christ. You might be doing a lousy job, guys, of being Christ. I know that, uh, that my, it, my impression of Christ could be a little bit better than perhaps it is. My, my wife might probably give me some pointers on where I can improve. But I am not a, a living embodiment of Jesus. But nonetheless, in the role of marriage, I'm playing that role. Um, my marriage is a picture. No matter how good or how bad... No matter how well we do it or otherwise, marriage is a picture of that relationship. And I am playing the role of Christ. And in the same way, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Want to know how much you need to love your wives, guys? He died. Have that as your bar. You won't need to go beyond that bar because you'll be dead. So that's a pretty safe bar to have. So that's our bar. We're going to love our wives unto death that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing with the word. She's playing the role of the bride. Christ dies. Why does he die on the cross? To cleanse the church from her sins, that she might be his spotless bride. And so, Christ sacrifices himself for his bride. And so there is this interplay between husbands, Christ, wife, the church. And so he says... On that basis, verse 28, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes, cherishes it just as the Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Right, listen, let me say this in passing, though it's incredibly important, but it's not really the flow, but I need to say it because I don't want to miss it. You need to love your wife, husbands, as your own body. Okay, listen, if I put my hand here on the pulpit and one of you came up as a volunteer, no, it's not going to happen, don't worry, and you took a hammer and you smashed my hand, I would know about it. Yes, I think we can all agree on that. I don't have leprosy, my nervous system works fine, I'm going to feel it, right? Okay. If you took my wife's hand and then you hit it with a hammer. There'll be all sorts of consequences for you, but let's leave that aside. But if you put my wife's hand there and you put a hammer there, then if I was in the room, there would be a reaction from me. But if you put me in a different room, you put a blindfold on me, and you put earplugs in my ear, or some loud noise-canceling headphones playing something loud, then I would not feel a thing. And yet, that's my hand and my body. And one of our jobs as spouses, is to create a nervous system, spiritually, that doesn't exist physically. We have to be able to feel what they feel. What hurts them doesn't, may not hurt us. And so our nervous system doesn't pick up on it. But we need to create that nervous system. It's so important and it's so foundational to where we're going the next two weeks. And so that means that just because you think your wife is stupid, because she reacts to something that you don't react to, just because your husband is some idiot because, you know, why would that be important? It's clearly not important in the whole spectrum of things. That's not the right response. The right response is to care, what they care for what they care about to feel for what they feel about, to cry about what they cry about. Because we are one flesh. I'm going to get to the point in a minute. Here's the point. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast his wife, the two shall become one flesh. That's what we've been talking about. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul when he uses the word mystery, he's talking about something very specific. He is not talking about, oh, it's a mystery. Where's the clue? Scooby-Doo. You know, that's not what he's talking about. It is a specific theological term that he uses. It comes back to, it goes back to Daniel chapter 2, if you're interested in the whole thing. But it basically means this, that there was something that was not revealed 
that now has been revealed. Typically, it refers to something that in the Old Testament, if all you had was your Old Testament, you would not have come to that conclusion. But now, after Christ, there is this progressive revelation, there's a bit more revelation, and now we see something that previously we didn't see. Okay? What did we know about marriage? Well, initially, there were a lot of things known about marriage from the beginning. The previous verse here, Paul has quoted from Genesis, and it was very clear right at the beginning, Adam and Eve, that the two become one flesh. That the physical act of sexual intimacy creates something physically which also exists spiritually. That there is this oneness between husband and wife. And that's always been the case. As Israel's history progressed and revelation progressed and more scripture was written, it became clear that the relationship between a husband and wife was not just merely one flesh. It wasn't just something that was a, that was, um, uh, that was a contract or was some sort of re- undefined relationship, but rather that it was a covenant. That that when God makes covenants with Israel, he expresses in those covenants his loving faithfulness, his mercy. Who God is, is expressed in his covenants. This becomes really clear by the time we come to the book of Hosea. Hosea was a prophet and his job was to preach to the northern kingdom of Israel and say to them, you have been unfaithful to God. Now God wanted Hosea to do a very good job of that. The message needed to be heartfelt. And so God says to Hosea, I want you to go and marry this woman who is a prostitute. I want you to go and marry a woman who who is basically a whore. Go and take her to be your wife and marry her. And so he did. And he took this woman and they got married and they have children. And then she goes off and she goes back to her life of adultery and prostitution. And Hosea was left children he was crushed his heart was broken and the terrible stain and injury of unfaithfulness was something that he as a public figure would have worn very publicly and God says to him take her back we're not finished yet and so he goes out and he finds her and he wins her back And then God says, okay, now you can preach about spiritual unfaithfulness. Now you can preach about how Israel has been unfaithful to me. Because I think you get it now. Which, by the way, young men, is why if you can do anything else, avoid the ministry. Because routinely, you just have to live out stuff that you have to preach. You have to be beaten until when you preach, you care. And so, Israel learnt that the covenant relationship that God had with his chosen nation, Israel, was an expression of marriage. That marriage was representing this covenant relationship between God and Israel. But what Paul is saying this is this. He's saying, you think you understood covenant under the old covenant? Under the, perhaps the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant? You think you understood covenant? I'm going to show you covenant. The clearest expression of this is found in, um, in uh, first, uh, sorry, John chapter 1 in John's prologue where he's talking about Jesus becoming flesh. And it says that, he says there that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Grace and truth is what God expressed to Israel through covenant. You want to see the fullest expression of grace and truth? You want to see God's love as close up as it can ever be seen? Let me take you to the cross. Let me take you to the new covenant. We're going to show you covenant that goes beyond the covenants you know. We're going to take you to a covenant that's not like the old covenant. Isn't that what Jeremiah prophesied? This new covenant won't be like the old one. We're going to come back to that in a minute. This, old covenant, this new covenant won't be like the old one. It's going to be an eternal, everlasting covenant. And this is the ultimate expression of God's love for his people. Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins. That is covenant. And my friends, that is marriage. 
And so Paul says, here's your mystery. This is what was never seen. You got the one flesh bit, you got the covenant bit, but the cross now shows you what you never saw so clearly before. This, since Adam and Eve, they never knew it. Right through Hosea, he never knew it. But now you, new covenant believers, can see what marriage was always intended to be. The relationship between Christ and his church. Amen? I hope we understand that. But unfortunately, the church today doesn't. Because the church today says, yes, 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 I get that. Yes, the husband's the Christ and the, the wife is the church. I understand all of that. And equally, they understand Romans chapter 8, where Christ will never leave us or forsake us. Where Paul talks in Romans 8. Shall I read it? Because it's really powerful stuff. Let me briefly read to you from Romans 8. He says this. I am sure, Romans 8.38, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That, my friends, is a completely unbreakable covenant. Go out and sin and Christ's blood covers your sin. Don't, I'm not saying to do that. Obviously, you shouldn't do that. But there is nothing that we can do. There is nothing that the enemy can do. There is nothing that anybody else can do. There is nothing, if you are saved, that can ever separate you from the love of Christ. And yet, the divorce numbers amongst evangelical Christians are almost as high as the rest of society. Shame on us. That is our message. Look, have a look at the gospel. My wife and I. Have a look at the gospel. Here we are. <sighs> Rattles me, and it should rattle you. But you say, hold on a second, hold on a second. What about in Matthew's gospel where he says, except for adultery? Well, let's just, let's think about that. You can be turning to Matthew 19, because that's where we're going next. Is that what Jesus says? Let's have a look. But let me just say to you this. If Paul says that marriage is a representation of the relationship between Christ and the church, and we know that that relationship and that covenant is completely unbreakable and is that God will be faithful no matter what and under all circumstances, we have to start with the default value that marriage is unbreakable. We have to. Or otherwise, Paul's whole point becomes pointless. Matthew 19, teachings about divorce. And when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee, entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by saying, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Everybody misses this. Everybody forgets this. No one notices. I don't know what the problem is. It's as clear as his day. The Pharisees, religious leaders, come to Jesus, and their question is what? Is it lawful? Lawful for who? Is it lawful in French law in the Middle Ages? Lawful for American Christians in the 21st century? Or perhaps is it lawful under the law of Moses, which is the context, because they're the experts in the law. It's not rocket science, folks. It's as basic as basic can be. He's asking Jesus what the Mosaic law says. If you understand that, most of the, the wrong conclusions that come from this passage become very simple. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? At that time, the Pharisees had an understanding of divorce, and it was this. That in the, uh, in the, the passage of the Bible uh, that deals with this Old Testament issue, which is Deuteronomy chapter 24, there is an expression about a husband um, having a wife, and he gets married, and he finds that his wife is... And there is a word, and it's a difficult word in Hebrew, and it's difficult when it's translated from Hebrew into Greek, and it's a word that basically means immorality. Typically sexual immorality, but it can be used more broadly. Sometimes it's used um, to speak, uh, I found an example in, uh, 
in uh, other Greek literature where this same word is used of a general who fled away from warfare because he was scared. And it implies shame. It's a word that implies shame, shamefulness. But typically it's used sexually, sexual immorality. Okay? And that's in Deuteronomy 24. Now, what the Pharisees have done is they taken this law, they taken Deuteronomy 24, and they said, yeah, so a guy gets married, he finds that his wife has been immoral, and he's allowed to divorce her. Okay? Well, first of all, it does not say a man gets married, he's been married for 15 years, and then his wife is immoral and he divorces her. It does not say that. It says he gets married, and on the act of getting married to her, he discovers that she's been unfaithful. What could that possibly mean? I don't know. If you get married, and three months later she has a baby, that might be a clue. So it's that kind of thing. There is, there is, I would argue that, in fact, it's not even a divorce, although the terminology is used. I think today we might more commonly call it annulment. But that's what's being referenced. But the Pharisees played with this. And they said, okay, so we can get a bill of divorce. That's great. For immorality, shamefulness. Yeah, okay, I understand it typically means that. But, you know, my wife's done some very shameful things. Just the other day she was rude to the neighbor. Shameful, shameful. I'm not even exaggerating. There are rabbinical writings where rabbis argue for the justification to divorce their wives for burning the toast. True story. That this shamefulness, this immorality, this, this wrongness that is being spoken of was used so broadly as to really allow what we have today, which is a any cause divorce. And by the way, there is a warning to anyone who teaches here. It's so tempting to try and make the Bible mean what you want it to mean. That's why we're judged ever so strictly for what we say. And that's why I'm shaking in my boots about these three weeks. Because there's, there are consequences, there's responsibilities. And so, Jesus says is asked, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? In other words, is this whole burning the toast thing, is that legit? Is that what Moses meant? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Right, so they're saying, hey, Jesus, what do you think about the whole Moses divorce thing? Deuteronomy 24. They're pointing him to Deuteronomy 24, Right. What does Jesus do? Ah, oh, you want to know what Moses says about divorce? Let's go to Genesis 1 and 2. Jesus, he, he, he changes the, where they're pointing. They want to know what the law says. They want to know what Moses says. Jesus points them back to Genesis 1 and 2. You, this is such a good principle of Bible study, folks. Don't get lost in the specifics if it means completely changing the foundations. By, by arguing over the specifics of Deuteronomy 24, they completely twisted the basics of Genesis 1 and 2. And Jesus points them back to that and he says, the two have become one. That's what Moses says. That's what Genesis says. That's what it says from the very beginning. Therefore, they are, so they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. Therefore, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Listen, if you're going to qualify to be a lawyer, fine, go ahead. We need lawyers. But if you're going to be a divorce lawyer, you better be really careful. Don't let anybody separate what God has joined together. If you've got friends who are Christians who are going through a divorce, you be careful what you say to them. Don't let anybody separate what God has brought together. And if your marriage is in trouble... We are here to help you. But do not separate what God has brought together. Doesn't look like this is a great passage for an excuse for a divorce, does it, really, at this point? Just an observation. So, that's the situation, verse 7. They say, well then, how come Moses said, look, you can have a certificate of divorce to send, send her away? Why does Deuteronomy 24 exist if you say, this is what Genesis says? And Jesus says this. He said, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. 
but from the beginning it was not so. What is the basis for Deuteronomy 24? We're told 100% clearly the basis for Deuteronomy 24 is what? Hard heart. Hard hearts is a phrase that you will see in the Old Testament again and again and again and again and again and again and again. Why? Because they had hard hearts. It was a problem. It was a big problem. What's God going to do about that problem? Jeremiah 31. I'm going to make a new covenant with you and we're going to take those hearts of stone and give you hearts of flesh. The new covenant deals with the heart issue. The new covenant doesn't just say, here, do this. It says, here, the Holy Spirit is yours. He will indwell you and empower you. We don't have a hard heart problem anymore. That is the difference between old and new covenant. That is the mystery of marriage. That is the progression. This doesn't apply. Simple stuff. Very simple stuff. If you really want to start picking over Deuteronomy 24, well, first of all, at best, you've got an annulment. And secondly, you better, start, stop, you better stop eating shellfish and pork. The Mosaic law ended with the death of Christ. I've taught that thing a million times. Go back and reference all the Hebrew sermons. But the reality is, is that that particular part of Mosaic law only existed, words of Jesus, because of hard hearts. And the hard heart issue is dealt with through the new covenant by the giving of the Holy Spirit, which every Christian who believes has. And therefore, this is a non-issue. Simple. And so Jesus says in conclusion, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. In other words, what Jesus does is he says to them, wanting to know how the law applies to them at their circumstances under Old Covenant, before the New Covenant, before the cross. He says, if you divorce your wife and it's not for pornea is the word. It's where we get our word pornography from. It is a word for immorality that is very explicit about it being sexual immorality. So what is Jesus doing here? He's saying this. You've asked me, is it okay to divorce for any reason? And he says, Moses gave you your answer already. You think you want that immor immorality word to be used broadly? I'm telling you it's specifically sexual immorality, but that only exists because of hardness of heart. And for us as a church, we're looking at a history lesson on how to interpret old covenant law and we are not old covenant people we are new covenant people <sighs> I think that's clear isn't it and isn't it interesting that that exception clause exists in Matthew's gospel where they're very interested in the specifics of mosaic law but in Mark's gospel where he's teaching Gentiles predominantly as an audience it doesn't even mention the clause if you really think that Christians today are excused a divorce on the basis of adultery, then you need to somehow explain why Mark says you can't and he has no clause to get out of it. It doesn't exist in Mark's gospel. Why? Because Mark doesn't report that because the specifics of Deuteronomy 24 aren't relevant to Mark's audience. And by the way, he doesn't say that you can get divorced for adultery. He specifically says... Pornia referencing Deuteronomy 24, what he actually says is if you get divorced and then you marry somebody else, that's adultery. Different Greek word. The word for adultery is in the text, but it's what happens afterwards. Why am I going through all of this at length? Because I want you to understand something that as we come to 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3, in the next few weeks, is going to deal with some of the harshest and most brutal truths that we will have to have as Christians, which is what happens if the person that you are one flesh with treats you terribly, does their job badly, makes your life miserable, and there seems to be no escape. And we have to understand that biblically we come to that passage with a background where divorce is not an option. God hates divorce. And by the way, if you point to God divorcing Israel in the Old Testament, which he did, I understand that. I have two things to say in response to that. Firstly, God's relationship with Israel was Old Covenant, not New Covenant. So all of this doesn't apply. And secondly, God has promised the restoration of Israel. In other words, what God the Father will do is he might put aside Israel, but it's very clear, Romans 9, 10, and 11, that he's going to bring her back. 
So that does not give any legitimacy for what we see in churches today. I want to say one thing that's just not part of the flow here at all, but I want to deal with it because it might be relevant. What do we say then on a pastoral level to somebody who has divorced and has remarried? Was that sinful and what should they do? The answer is this. Yes, it was sinful. I think the text is very clear. But what should you do? My advice as pastor has always been consistent on this point, and it is this. You didn't keep your first covenant. That was sinful. You now have a new covenant. Keep it. Do it this time. Make it right. As simple as that. And by the way, this is to do with the issue of someone being alive. When there is death, the covenant ends. That's what we say when we get married. For better, for worse, for richer or poorer, till death do us part. And we all know it. So with death, the covenant comes to an end. That's an ending. That's, by the way, why this doesn't apply to us in Matthew 19. Because the old covenant has come to an end. Why has the old covenant come to an end? Because of death. The death of Christ on the cross. Death brings the covenant to an end. Okay? So we come to 1 Peter. That's your cue. Back to 1 Peter. We come to 1 Peter 3. And we come to it with a foundation of the principle of marriage, what Paul has now revealed, husbands and wives representing Christ in the church, and the permanence of marriage. Now, we are going to, in the next two weeks, I'm going to show, talk to you now about what we're going to do. In the next two weeks, we'll look at wives next week and husbands the week after, Okay? And this is going to be our structure, okay? We will, as we look at husbands and wives, be referring back to the example of Christ. No deceit, no reviling, and no threatening. That if you think that in your marriage, that anything your spouse does justifies you lying or even exaggerating... She always, he never, if you think that anything your spouse does justifies reviling, will you say I'm that? You're this. Or if you think it involved threatening in any of its forms, including especially the use of the D word, bearing in mind the permanence of marriage, then you are so mistaken and you have ignored the fact that that verse is literally a couple of sentences before the passages on husbands and wives and that is not accidental in any way shape or form when paul comes to ephesians 5 this is how you should walk this is how you should live this is what it looks like to be a christian because of what god's done for you he began that whole section in chapter 4 and verse 1 by saying that we need to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling by which we've been called i'm going to read it you stay in first peter because we're going straight straight back there but he says walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you've been called with all humility gentleness patience Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Wives submit to their husbands, husbands love their wives, right? There's distinctions, there's differences. But every one of us is a Christian. And so husbands and, lives, husbands and wives will treat each other with gentleness. Being head of the family is not a get-out clause for the command to be gentle. They will be humble. They will have humility. This person is more important than I am. They will also um, have patience. I think that's pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? In marriage, there's a need for an awful lot of that, is there not? They will bear with one another in love. What's forbearance? Forgiveness is not forbearance. Forgiveness is when someone comes to you and they say, I've wronged you, will you forgive me? And you say, yes, I will forgive you. And thus your relationship is restored. Forbearance is when they don't come to you and say, will you forgive me? Forbearance is when they treat you badly and they've got either no idea that they have, or they do and they don't care, or they do and they care but they aren't going to say sorry. 
Forbearance is when you treat them well, regardless. Maintaining the unity of the Spirit. We are one in Christ. We are co-heirs of grace. And so we together work in unity. And we have a bond of peace. God has forgiven us. We forgive each other. And there is peacefulness. See, that stuff has no distinction. That is upon husbands and that is upon wives. And there is no distinction there at all. So, oh, there's a foundation for you, isn't there? You see why I wanted to take a week to get all of this done before we get to specifics? How do we approach husbands and wives in First Peter? This is how we're going to do it. We're going to look at the do not deceive, do not, uh, de- no deceit, no reviling, no threatening. We're going to look at that for husbands and for wives because we all do it and we all have different ways of doing it. And we're going to address it because that's why it was specifically mentioned a few verses before. Okay? Secondly, we're going to do this. Okay? I hope. <laughs> I've been plotting these for months and I keep changing my mind. So I hope, this is the plan, hopefully, okay? A few months back, uh, the tribute for young Tommy Walters, we taught a sermon entitled The Alphabet of, Alphabet of Lament. And we taught about how biblically we lament as individuals and corporately. For those of you who weren't here, go and listen to it. It was one of my better ones. It was also very important. And, and, and for those of you who weren't familiar, or those of you who've forgotten, here is my alphabet of lament. A means to acknowledge. One of the great sins that we do is, in our church circles is we t- we people, someone says, oh, I'm really upset because this and that has happened, and we throw a Bible verse at them, and basically we're second, you know, subtly telling them to shut up. The Psalms are full of people saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You have beaten me, you have hurt me, you've wounded me, you've deserted me. You've allowed this to happen. This is going on and that is going on. I'm just despairing. And if you say that Christians can't do that, you are unbiblical. There has to be a place where people in pain are allowed to acknowledge their pain. Acknowledge their hurts. Acknowledge the bad treatment towards them. I spoke about this, I think it was last week. There are some churches in our circles that go so far as to say that it's, you can't even call someone a victim because we're not all victims. We're original sin. We're all sinners. Yeah, I get it. We're all sinners. But when someone hurts you, you're a victim. If you haven't done anything to deserve it. And we need to care and we need to love. And sometimes I think that kind of theology has got far more to do with people not wanting to love and show empathy than it has anything to do with the Bible and theology. So we need to let people acknowledge their pain and their grief. And we don't do it well and we need to do it well. We, the broad church, don't do it. I think we do it here very well and I, and I love this church for it. B is just as important because there are other churches that get the A right but don't do the rest of it. B is behold. Behold our God. You see, here we are with all our pain, all our struggles and all our suffering. But there's God. And he's perfect and he's holy He's good, he loves us, he's merciful, he's kind, he's gracious, and he is sovereign. He's in control of your marriage and your life and every part of your life. Every sickness, every death, every tragedy, he is sovereign. Here we go. And he can be trusted. You see, how can I trust God when my husband is like this? How can I trust God when my wife does this? How can I trust God when everyone I know is sick and dying? And how can I trust God when I'm constantly in pain? And how can I trust God? How can I trust God? How can I trust God? The same way that Jesus as his back was so scourged and ripped that he couldn't hold the cross on his back, went to Calvary with the power within him to call down every one of the heavenly hosts and end his suffering in a moment and went to that cross to to pay the price for our sins. That's how we're going to do it. Like that. We, like him, will entrust ourselves to God. 
That's how it works, folks. That's what makes us Christians. It does not make us Christians to argue over Matthew 19 and try and find excuses so that we can get out of marriages we don't want to be in. It makes us Christians when we say, to the cross, whatever happens, I can trust my God. Behold my God. And C is sometimes forgotten even by those who do B, and that is to cry out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's A and C all at once right there, isn't it? If God is sovereign, and if God cares, he's the one that we cry out to. We don't go to our buddies when we hang out with them, wherever we hang out with our buddies, and say, oh, yeah, she's a nightmare, mate. Oh, you have no idea the struggle I'm having. We don't go to the girls when we're meeting together for, for whatever we're meeting together for a cup of tea, and we say... Yeah, he's just terrible. You know, we go to the one who is sovereign. Your, your, your buddy might make you feel, oh gosh, yeah, it must be terribly hard being you, and he is the worst person on the planet. But that isn't going to resolve anything. There's only one person who can change hearts. Let's just say for a minute, just for one minute, that your spouse is as bad as you think they are. Uh, by the way, they're not. And you're worse than you think you are, but that's another story. But let's say for one minute they're as bad as you think they are then nonetheless, the only hope you have is for God to change them. Because you can't, and you have no biblical mandate to do so. Which is going to be pretty much the main point that comes through the next two weeks. If your husband sucks wives, you do you. If your wife sucks husbands, you do you. You've got to do what you're commanded to do. And so we will acknowledge our suffering. We will behold our God. We will cry out to our God. And D, E, and F are this. D is do what is right. Regardless of what is done to you, regardless of your circumstances, do what is right. Yes? If you want to treat your husband well, as you're commanded to do, then it's a lot easier if he's a good husband. If he shouts at you, if he's harsh with you, if he is impatient with you, it's a lot harder to treat him well. But the command of Scripture is the same regardless whether he is or isn't. So you have to do what's right. But because of A, then we can empathize and we can understand. We can acknowledge and say, do you know what? It's really, really hard to do this. And we can sit together and we can cry together and we can say, gosh, this is so hard. But you're always going to be advised by someone who truly loves you and truly loves God to do what's right. Always. And if you ever advise anybody to, to not do what's right because somehow they're the exception, then if I hear about it, that's when church leadership and discipline gets put into place. Because that's serious stuff. Let no man separate what God has brought together. And E and F is what First Peter's all about. Endure faithfully. Endure faithfully. Now, I'm well aware that this foundational thing may leave as many questions as answers. And I will address them. We have seen contextually, as we go through this, that submission to authorities has to happen. Okay? So, if someone, if someone says, you know, I'm fed up of saying I fell down the stairs. I've got bruises all over me. And he, he, he beats me. Do I just have to stay and faithfully endure that? And the answer is very complicated. It's never, it's never easy, but, but I will say this. I don't think there's ever grounds for divorce. Ever. But at the same point, there is a government, we saw it in chapter 2, to punish evil and to reward good. And if someone is breaking the law then there is recourse. And churches need to be more willing to allow that to happen where necessary. So I'm not suggesting by this 
that if there is a situation where someone is in serious physical harm, that they need to just go on being in seri serious physical harm. Please don't misrepresent my opinion. But even if somebody had to remove themselves from being in serious physical harm, that is not grounds for divorcing. It may be good grounds for not being in the same house for a while. It may be in good grounds for, for the church leadership dealing with the, the sin of the situation. But it's not grounds for divorce and to permanently end and separate what God has brought together. That's my point. And I think that there needs to be this acknowledging of pain and empathy. And so when we come to wives, we will go through A, B, C, D, E, F. We will talk about how difficult it is as a wife when your husband sucks. It's really hard. It's not something that should be brushed over. It's something we have to acknowledge and we need husbands to hear us next week and to hear how hard it is. We need to be prompted to change. But wives need to be told to behold God, see who he is. And submitting to their husbands, they're not really submitting to their husbands, they're submitting to God who tells them to submit to their husbands. And so they see who God is and they cry out to him and they, by, by crying out to him, they're going to do what he says. And what, do they, what does he tell them to do? That's next week's sermon. And it involves enduring faithfully. And so, there is our foundation. I will leave it there. I would ask in this coming two weeks that you do a few things. Firstly, if you are unmarried, if you are unmarried and you are single and you have no spouse who is alive and you are able to be married, whether you're young or old. I, this, just this week, saw an old friend of mine who I've known for, I don't know, how long we've known Greg? 15 years, maybe? Just got married for the first time at 58. Just met his wife, 54, as happy as two kids. It's just beautiful. So yeah, whenever, whenever you get married, if you're able to get married, let this stuff impact you. Because firstly, you're a part of this church, and there are a lot of married people in the church. And how you respond to them in their difficult situations is very relevant. But secondly, when you understand the permanence of marriage, it makes the whole dating thing look very different. Very much more serious. Very much more sober. It's something that you do not rush into. It's something you take incredible care over because of its permanence. So be praying about that. If you are a husband or a wife, I know what you're going to want to do. You're going to want to pray that your spouse hears everything that I'm saying. Because boy, do they need to hear it. How about we leave that? How about we start the, mean we, the way we mean to go on? How about this week, you pray that you hear what you need to hear? Because you can't change them. You pray for your heart. And you pray for your soul. And you pray that you are humble enough to let God's word change you. There may be things that you think you can do that's okay for you to do, or you don't have to do, because we always see in Scripture what we want to see, because we're sinners. Let's be ready to be challenged, and let's be ready to change. And finally, pray for me. <laughs> Not the easiest sermons. And I want, to, I want to do justice to those who hurt. I want to care for those who mourn. I want to value those who suffer. At the same point, I do not want to compromise the text one little bit. And I would be grateful if you would pray with me to those ends in the coming weeks. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you have chosen to express the new covenant relationship between Christ and his church through marriage. Maybe before we even get to the next couple of weeks, some of us already see the need for us to repent. May we do so when need be. 
If your spirit has convicted our heart this day, may we go to our spouse without any expectation of reciprocation, without any expectation that you've moved on them to do the same. May we go to them and may we confess our sins towards them and may we ask for their forgiveness. And Lord, may we as a church get this issue right. May we fight for marriage. May we fight for the marriages in this church. God, may you raise up people, mature of faith, who would come alongside struggling couples and love them and support them. Not just teach them the scriptures, but just hang out with them, encourage them, keep an eye on them, rebuke them, strengthen them, help with practical needs, and just may we as a church do all that we can, not just to keep marriages together for your glory, but to make them to be the most wonderful of things. May we glorify your son through the marriages of this church, we pray. Amen.